Welcome. If this is your first evening with us, we're uh, in my part of the program doing a series on Elijah. And we are living in the days of Elijah. And what I mean by that is the same, the same issues that created a catalyst for Elijah to come and for Jesus to come. I believe those things are going to precipitate the second coming of Jesus, and we are in that time now. God is looking for the message of Elijah to call his people back to the Lord once again. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the second book, I'm sorry, 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17, we'll briefly review where we are. Elijah's name is mentioned about a hundred times in the Bible. Um, Like Melchizedek, he seems to sort of drop out of the sky. Don't hear much about his heritage. It just says one day he marches into the presence of the king and pronounces a curse. Because of the sins of the people and their spiritual harlotry, they were going after other gods, being uh, uh, encouraged by Jezebel to do so or instigated. You read in chapter 17, verse 1, 1 uh, Kings, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will not be dew nor rain these years, except in my word. You know, Joseph also predicted a famine, didn't he? Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherish, which flows into the Jordan, and it will be that you will drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Notice first the word of the Lord came from him, then the word of the Lord came to him, and then he obeys the word of the Lord. That's a good pattern. And he went and he stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. We don't know how long he was there exactly, but you read in the next verses, it happened after a while, the brook dried up. We've had a few famines, or I should say droughts, in Northern California since uh, I lived there. Uh, Our family's had a home in the hills for um, 40 years. And uh, there are certain springs that are year-round springs. Even in the summer, you can find water. But during the years of drought, some of them went dry. And there are a few dependable springs that you could count on that seem to have water even in the times of drought. Well, these pools where Elijah was staying, gradually he noticed the water level was going down. He noticed instead of it being a little waterfall, it turned into a stream and then a little trickle. And he was wondering what was going to happen because even if the breads were bringing him food, uh, he didn't expect the ravens to bring him water. And I don't suppose he was very worried because he thought, you know, that same God that's been giving me a miracle from heaven every day is not going to let me perish. But, you know, God sometimes, God sometimes brings his miracles just at the last minute when we were in... uh, Russia, they had a proverb there. It says, God is never late, but he's seldom early. (laughs) And uh, it seems like he sometimes waits until your water has run out and your food has run out before you strike the rock and before you collect the manna. 
He may test your faith. So gradually the brook dried up. Now that doesn't sound fair, does it? Because Elijah didn't disobey the Lord. Why is he suffering because of the sins of the people? Do the righteous also suffer along with the wicked? Didn't Jesus say that God sends the sunshine on the just and the unjust alike? And Paul said the whole creation groans and travails waiting to be delivered. The whole world right now is suffering because of the results of sin. It's like a garment that is waxing old and uh, it travails to be delivered. We know Jesus is going to come soon because if he didn't, Jesus said there'd be no flesh that would survive. Man would self-destruct eventually. And so even the righteous, they suffer because of the sins of the wicked. And so eventually the brook dried up. And at that point, God then gave him the next instructions. And the word of the Lord came to him. And verse 8, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon. And there I have commanded a widow to provide for you. As you read on, you'll find out she hadn't gotten the word yet. But God had prepared a person in advance. And so he arose, not knowing exactly where he went. He knew he was going to Zarephath, which is about 90 miles, but he didn't know where he was staying. You know, as we travel, Karen and I made some hotel arrangements along the way, and we get confirmation, and, and uh, you got it, the, the, the address saved, and you got a GPS to get you there. But in Bible times, God just said, go west. And uh, there's a woman there. Well, can I have a photo, Lord? No, trust me. Can you give me a name, a number? I'd like to text them. I'll let you know when you need to know. You know, God still leads in divine ways. I'll tell you a quick story. We have uh, an evangelist with amazing facts. Uh, he's now actually pastoring. He, he uh, was a Pentecostal pastor. And uh, he began to watch Amazing Facts programs and study the material, and he became convicted about the Sabbath. But he, you know, was uh, an associate pastor of one of the largest Pentecostal churches in Sacramento, and uh, really struggled. And finally, one day, he just was so overwhelmed with conviction that this was the Sabbath. He woke up one Saturday morning, and he thought, "This is the Sabbath. I need to go to church." And he just felt this impression. He didn't know where to go to church. So while he's under this conviction, he gets up and he gets dressed and he puts on a suit and he walks out his front door and he thinks, what am I doing? I have no idea where I'm going. Had never been to an Adventist church. And right when he's in standing in his front yard, he sees up the street, a family steps out of the house, a father and mother, two or three kids. And they get in a car and God says, follow them. <laughs> and so he gets in his car he wondered if he really had that impression. And as they pull out, he, he hesitates. He thinks, what am I doing? Am I crazy? What? And he pulls out and he starts following them. He says, well, you know, at least I'll get towards the freeway because I don't know exactly where I'm going anyway and may as well. Well, they start winding around town. And he's, you know, like a CIA agent. He's trying to track them. He's keeping up with these people, you know, and he's racing them through lights and stuff to not get stuck where it turns yellow and he doesn't make it in time. And, and then they get out on the freeway, Interstate 80, and they're just heading west. And he's saying, he's arguing with himself all along the way. He says, this is the craziest thing I've ever done. 
said, I don't know who these people are. They lived a few houses down, but I've never met them. I don't know who they are. I don't know where they're going. They could be going to Japan. I don't know where they're going. And here I am, I'm trying to follow them. Well, this kept up for a while. Pretty soon they turned off the freeway. He's still following them. It's like 10 miles. That's a long time to argue with yourself about whether or not you're sane. But he couldn't shake the impression that God told him to follow that family. Then they pulled into an office park, and he thinks, what am I doing here? They got out, and he saw them pull Bibles out of their car. And they walked from the car into the building. He got out of his car, and he followed them in. And it was a Seventh-day Adventist church plant. And he began to worship there, and this was a plant that came from Sacramento Central. Eventually, he came over and worshiped with us, he got baptized and studied, became an evangelist, and now is a pastor in Colorado. This is an amazing testimony, how God leads. I don't know if it's in my book or not. I woke up one morning and was impressed I was supposed to go to this Sunday church and preach. It's actually Easter Sunday. And um, I thought, that's crazy. I'm just going to walk in and say, I'm here to preach. But um, I just, I had this impression. And so I went, I, I went down to the Faith Tabernacle and I came in, I came a little late, and they were having the prayer before the worship service. And in a Pentecostal church, if you've ever been there, you know, they prayed and they, they, they pray and then they kind of they pray in tongues and then they kind of work themselves up to a lather and the, the music is playing while they pray and then it settles down and they all kind of know, all right, now it's time. And the pastor stood up and he said, uh, <clears throat> we're going to have testimonies. He took a couple testimonies and it's a small town. He said, I see Brother Doug is here. Brother Doug, do you have a word for the Lord? And I thought, is this really happening? <laughs> and uh, I said, um, I said, Pastor Hull, I said, you know us preachers. I said, I don't have just a word. <laughs> and he said, well, you come on up and preach. <laughs> so I went up and I preached. And I made an altar call. Some of them came forward speaking in tongues. <laughs> and... Uh, one of the ladies that responded uh, came to me later. She said, aren't you the pastor of the Adventist church? I said, yes. She started coming to the Adventist church, and she joined. And I just know that the Lord brought me there that day. God still leads providentially. And so he told Elijah, go to Zarephath. And so he arose, and he went to Zarephath, and he makes his 90-mile trip, and he's probably traveling some at night. And things I expect look very different from when he had first pronounced the judgment to Ahab and when he left Samaria and he went to hide in the brook. Everything was lush and green. Cattle were fat. Everything looked good. And now he leaves. It's a very different picture. There's the signs of famine and starvation everywhere. Everything is parched. Dust and dust of devils are blowing around the country. There are carcasses of starved animals laying here and there. And so as he walks through the land, he can already see the results. So he gets up to the gates of Zarephath, and it tells us a widow was there gathering sticks. Now, he doesn't know exactly who it's supposed to be, and it's kind of like Eliezer when he went to find a wife for Isaac. He went to the gates of the city, and he said a prayer. And God providentially put him in touch with Rebekah. Remember, he put out that fleece and said, uh, 
You know, if I ask for a drink of water and she offers the water to the camels, that's a good test of service. Let her be the one. That happened at the gates of the city. And so he's, he's there, and, and Elijah prays and says, all right, Lord, I don't know who it is. And he sees a widow come out, and she's gathering sticks. And he's got a test, and this test is about a drink of water too. Yeah, there's several stories about it. Where did Jacob meet his wife, Rachel? Is that a well? Where did Moses meet his wife? At a well. Any of you single? <laughs> Out there? You got to find a water fountain. Just hang out. <laughs> and where did Jesus talk to the woman? At a well. I can tell you which woman, but you knew. So he says, uh, he sees her there. He says, please drink, bring me a little water in a cup that I might drink. He's not asking for a lot. Bring a little. Now, when someone asked for a drink of water, it was really hard to say no. Now, Elijah's sort of a type of Christ, isn't he? And here is this woman, and he asked for a drink. And just like Jesus asked for a drink, and Jesus revealed himself to a non-Jewish woman that he was the Messiah. Here, Elijah is going to reveal the true God to this Gentile woman. And it starts by asking for a drink. And uh, they still had some water in the bottom of the well. They just had nothing in the fields. And so she says, all right, well, I'll, I'll go get a drink. And while she's on her way to get the drink, he says some, something outrageous. And he said, please bring me a morsel. Again, he's saying just a little of bread in your hand. Now, he's human. He's hungry. He hasn't seen the ravens bring him anything in 90 miles. So she said, at that point, her shoulders slumped. And she said, as the Lord your God lives. And you notice that she says the Lord. That's capital L in your Bible. She's saying Jehovah, your God. She could tell either from his speech or his attire that he was a Jew. And I expect that she had been praying to Jehovah. A lot of people saw what happened to Israel. They turned away from God and all these bad things started happening. And keep in mind, she's a Zidonian. Uh, the king of Tyre used to, you know, Tyre and Zidon were two twin cities, used to have a good relationship with Solomon and with David. He helped build the house for David. And they were at peace and he supplied lumber. And he knew about the true God and he blessed David and he blessed Solomon when he became king. And so they knew about Jehovah. They were their nearest neighbors. And so when she said, as the Lord your God lives. Notice how many times it's saying, as the Lord lives. What, is, what did Elijah say? As the Lord God of Israel lives. That's what he said to Ahab, didn't he? As the Lord your God lives. I do not have any bread. I've just got a handful of flour. I have no bread made. All I have left is a little flour in a bin and a little bit of oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks. Look at the, the meagerness. She's, I'm not even gathering a bundle of sticks, just a couple of sticks, a little oil, a little bread, that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we might eat and die. We're about to have our last supper. And I'm just scraping together enough wood to, to heat up one little bun. We'll break it in half. We're going to eat that, and then we'll wait for starvation to take us. What a pitiful picture. But I expect that woman had been praying. And I think she'd been praying to Jehovah. And God knew that. You know, Jesus, 
when he began his ministry, he stood up in his home church and he referenced this woman first. Did you know that? In Nazareth. That was our scripture reading. He said, surely, he said to his hometown church, first he said in Isaiah 61, he quotes, Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. He's calling himself the anointed. He said, surely this scripture is fulfilled today in your ears. I am the anointed. You know, when you start sharing the gospel, you start at home, don't you? And then he saw the looks on their faces and he said, verily, some of you here are going to say, physician, heal, heal yourself. And he says, there were many widows in the land in the days of Elijah when God shut up the heaven for three and a half years, but he wasn't sent to a Jewish widow. He was sent to a heathen widow. And that outraged them. Of all the places he could go, why would he go to a Gentile? You know, it was one generation after Jesus preached that sermon, there were more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. The gospel was supposed to be taken by the Jews to the Gentiles. Of course, that happened at Pentecost a lot. There's only one time that Jesus made a foray that we know of, other than when he was a child and he went to Egypt. During his ministry, he went once out of the territory of Israel. You know where he went? To Zidon, Zarephath area. And what did he do? He performed a miracle for a, a Gentile woman. Healed her daughter. Just park that thought. It comes up later. She said, we just have a little bit. How much can you do with a little bit of faith? Just have a little oil, just have a little bread and a couple of sticks. What can you do with that? Jesus said, if you've got faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be plucked up and cast into the sea and it will be done. Elijah saw she struggling. He said, do not fear. You know how often Jesus said, do not fear? Father said, Lord, can you come and heal my daughter? And while Jesus was on the way, a woman reaches out and touches him, and she's healed. And she's afraid, trembling, because Jesus said, who touched me? He told her, don't be afraid. Go, and, go in, in uh, peace. And then a messenger comes to Jairus and says, your daughter's died. And he can see Jairus' faith sink. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Disciples in the boat, why are you so afraid? Does God want us to live in fear? Or does he want us to live in faith? He said, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. You're going to get me a drink of water and you're going to make a cake. But make a small cake from it first and bring it to me. Afterward, make some for yourself and your son. Wow, the audacity. He sounds like a televangelist, doesn't he? <laughs> He's saying, first, I know that you're on Social Security and a fixed income, and I know you have almost no money in the bank, but you write a check to our ministry, and God will bless you. Have you heard that sermon before? This would make a great claim it and name it Sermon, you know, prosperity preaching, they call it blab it and grab it. It's you just, you know, so you say whatever you want, it's going to happen to you. Why did he say that? She's starving. He says, make a cake for me first. Well, that's a real test of faith, isn't it? So when you give your gifts, do you wait until you see that all your needs are taken care of and then you see what you have left for God? Did Jesus say, unless you love me more 
than father or mother or son or daughter. You are not worthy of me. Does the Bible say, seek ye second the kingdom of heaven? Does God tell us to bring him the second fruits? Does God have first place in your life? Or do you see if after you've done what you want to do and bought what you want to buy, if you have something left for God? If you would put God first, what is the promise? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and everything else will be added. You know, it's interesting that um, when Solomon became king, he made a very generous sacrifice. And that night, after he made the sacrifice in Gibeon, the temple wasn't built yet, the Lord appeared to him. It says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in all the commandments of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him and he said, ask what I shall give you. And he could have asked for a lot of different things. But the principal thing on his mind was he said, I don't know how to go out or come in. I'm just a child and here you've made me king of your people that are like the sand of the sea. And give me a, an understanding heart so I can know between right and wrong. And God was very pleased with the thing that Solomon asked for. And he said, because you have asked for this, because you put my kingdom first, and you did not say, well, now that you mentioned it, Lord, I'd like to be the richest king who's ever lived, and I'd like to be the smartest king who's ever lived, and I'd like to, you know, be the most famous. God said, because you put me and my kingdom first, I'm going to give you the things that you didn't ask for. And he gave him riches, and he gave him wisdom, you know, Jesus, I think, was alluding to this when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else you need will be added. Did God do that for Solomon? He said he put God's kingdom first, and everything else was added to him. And so it tells us that um, he said, Go make a cake for me first. Do not fear. Now, if you're that woman, what would you do? Would you say, You crazy preacher? Who do you think? And, you know, the guy's wearing a, a, a hairy garment and, and a, a leather belt. And if you see some, you know, apparently homeless person during a famine saying, just trust me, I've got a word from the Lord. Give me the first cake you make and you'll have plenty for yourself. But there's something about Elijah. He had uh, a relationship with God like Moses talking to God on the mountain. He shined a little bit. And I think that she recognized there was something special and he said, put, it, uh, put me first, put God first, and uh, afterward you make some for yourself and your son. Notice what he then. He gives a promise then by the word of God. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour will not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Now he's making a promise. I'm promising you, just like I said, there's going to be famine for years. I'm promising that God is going to supply for you through that famine if you receive me. Now, who does Elijah represent? His very name means my Lord is Jehovah. He is a type of Christ. We'll talk later in this series about how Elijah ascends to heaven and a double portion of the Spirit comes down. What does Jesus do? He ascends to heaven and he sends the Spirit. There's so many analogies to Elijah and Jesus. And so he makes this promise. Now, I just want to pause for a moment. What does oil represent? 
Holy Spirit, she's got a little oil left. What does bread represent? The Word of God. What do the two sticks represent? What's the cross made out of? That might be a stretch, but it's the only thing I can think of. I wish I had a second witness somewhere in the Bible. If you get an idea, you can come to me. But I'm pretty sure about the first two. He supplies the bread and he multiplies the oil. Notice what happens. So she goes away and she does according to the word of Elijah. And because she follows the word of Elijah, the word of the Lord was in Elijah's mouth, it says that she and he and her household, it's not just her son, there's evidently maybe other family or servants in the house, they ate for many days. And the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. There's a number of uh, videos I'm going to ask the angels to replay for me when I get to heaven. And one is going to be what it looked like when she reached into the barrel, took her scoop of flour and made a, made a cake and then looked in and there was more. And the next day she took it out and there was more. And the next day she took it out and there was more. Have you ever experienced God multiply for you before? How he can stretch things? Does the Bible tell us that God told the children of Israel, if you follow me, your shoes will not wear out, your garments will not wear away, I'll bless what you have? If you put God first, does he say he'll open the windows of heaven? Does God say, I will open for you the windows of heaven, and then you can pay me tithe? Or does he say, bring your tithes and offerings into the storehouse and test me if I will not open for you the windows of heaven? We put God first, and then he says, you see if I don't take care of you in the wilderness. Can he prepare a table for the people? One time the people got tired of eating bread, started to complain. Moses said, what am I going to do with these people? They're tired of manna, 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 manna cereal, manna for lunch, manna burgers and loaf at night. It's always manna, manna, manna. And God said, well, I'll, I'll give you some quail to break it up. And Moses says to the Lord, where are you going to get enough quail for all these people? And God said to Moses, is the hand of the Lord shortened? Since when have you come to doubt me? And then, you know, the Lord sent a wind. And it brought this quail. They were piled up three feet deep. And everybody ate so much, a lot of them got sick. God is able to supply. He's able to supply an overflow. As a woman came to Elisha, and she said, your servant, my husband, has died, one of the sons of the prophets. Before he died, he took out a loan to pay for our home and our farm, and then he died. He's left us in debt, and the creditor keeps coming and asking for collections, and I've given him everything I've got. We gave him everything in the house that's of any worth, and we can't keep making the payments anymore. And he said, next time he comes, he's going to take my sons. Now, they could do that in Bible times. By the way, this is 2 Kings chapter 4. You remember the man in Matthew chapter 18 that couldn't pay his debts, and the king said that he should be sold and his wife and his children. You couldn't file chapter 11 or chapter 13 and just shrug your shoulders. Back then, if you couldn't pay your debts, they could take everything and everyone. That woman said to Elisha, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, what do you have? She said, I don't have anything left. They've taken everything except I do have a little vase of oil. 
It's on the mantle. Don't even have a table anymore. It's just sitting on the mantle. Now, why would they keep oil for the last thing? Oil, a symbol of the Spirit. Oil was very, very precious. Olive oil was used for healing in the Bible. It was used for beauty. It was used for religious purposes. It was used for light. Kept the lamp burning. They'd start fires with it. It was used for warmth. I mean, it was one of the most precious commodities. All she had was a little oil. Elisha said, okay, use what you do have. Tell your sons to go through the neighborhood, get their radio flyer wagon, and collect empty vessels from all of the neighbors. And then after you get them all into your house, borrow these empty vessels, take the oil that you've got in that little jar and pour it out. And you'll see what God will do. So you don't question Elisha. Uh, he did twice as many miracles as Elijah. So she tells her boys to go through the neighborhood. They all knew she was struggling. They said, can we please borrow any empty vessels you have? And they said, well, we got the, I got a short one here, like a tall one here, I got a wide one, I got a thin one, I got a cracked one. They got all these different pots and vessels. And um, she brings them into the house, and they shut the door, she and her boys, and she takes the little jar of oil that she has, and she begins to pour and it just keeps pouring, and it keeps pouring, and she never gets beyond 45 degrees. It just keeps pouring. And she stops, and she says, all right, take that one away, let's bring another one, and another one, and another one. Her house is filled with these vessels of oil, and it's worth a lot more than motor oil back then. And finally, when all the vessels are full, she says to her boys, bring another one. They said, there's none left, they're all full. And then the, the oil stopped flowing. God does not work miracles for us in our abundance. He works miracles for us in our extremity. What if, well, let me finish the story of Elisha. She goes back to Elisha and says, what do I do now? He said, well, go, take it, sell it, pay your debt. You'll have money left over to live on. God not only supplied enough to pay the debt, there was an abundance. Doesn't it say in Psalm 23, my cup runs over? God is a God who will bless you if you put him first. What would have happened to that woman if when Elijah said, go make one for me first? If she had said, oh, you know, that's a little too much to ask. I think most of us would think that way. Would the story be in the Bible? I wonder how many miracles we've missed in our lives because we didn't put God to the test. God says, prove me. See if I don't supply your needs. See if I don't keep my word. If you seek first my kingdom, if I don't open for you the windows of heaven, if I don't supply, and I'm not just talking finances, but it certainly includes that, whatever it is, see if I don't supply your need. I think we've missed so many miracles. So, God opened the windows of heaven, and the oil kept flowing. You know, the interesting thing about that story I just shared in Second uh, Kings, that's really the pattern for church growth. What is the oil? Holy Spirit. What is a woman? Church. And what is a pot? A vessel. Paul said, we are vessels. God makes different vessels. She brings all these empty vessels into her home. 
She's just got a little bit of oil, but she pours out the little bit of oil that she has, and they're all filled, and she is blessed in the process. What do you think happened to her faith? Wouldn't it be nice if we went through our neighborhoods and brought all the empty vessels to our house? If we said a prayer and then begin to share what little bit we've got, pouring out the oil, and watch God perform a miracle? And there's an abundance. Matter of fact, while I'm on the subject, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We're talking about a miracle of bread multiplying here. Go to Mark 6, and if you look in verse 35, Jesus has finished an episode of preaching, and it says, When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place. We're out in the wilderness here. There's no bazaars or places where people can buy food. It's late. Send them away that they can go into the surrounding country and buy something for themselves to eat. They've had nothing to eat. You know, that's the wonderful thing about Jesus. His teaching was so profound that he could talk all day long and people would lose track of time because they were so enwrapped with the power of the truth that he spoke. And whereas when I preach, I see everybody kind of... <laughs> But uh, they said, send the people away so they can get something to eat. What did Jesus say to the apostles? You give them something to eat. Don't send them away. They said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread to give them just something to eat? And what does Jesus say? What do you have? Instead of thinking about what you don't have, what do you have? Oh, we just got a few crumbs. We got five loaves and a couple of sardines. But what is that among so many? What do you have? Five loaves and two fish. He commanded them to sit them down in groups on the green grass, and they sat down in ranks of hundreds and fifties. That's part of the way that Moses used to divide leadership too. And when they had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. Now what does that mean? He blessed and he broke them. That means that they took what they had and they gave it to Jesus. Jesus blessed it and gave it back. Are you with me? When we consecrate what we have to the Lord, what did that woman do with Elijah? He said, give me one first. She had to take the little she had and put it in his hands. And once she did that, God then did a miracle and supplied everything she needed. They took the loaves, little bit they've got, they give it to Jesus. Jesus then takes the little they have that is consecrated. He looks to heaven, and that's what we need to do. He blesses it. He gives it back to them. They then break it, and it evidently is expanding in their hands. Talk about bread rising. It just keeps expanding in their hands, and they can't give it away fast enough. It just keeps swelling. You ever seen that spray foam you do that expands, turns into insulation? That's wonderful stuff to watch, you know. Don't touch it. It's all sticky, though. But it's like that. It's like Jesus gave him the bread. He said, you better give it away quick. It'll swallow you. It just began to spread. And I don't know if it was like that, but it's fun to think about. That's the other video I want to see. Is what it looked like as the disciples were breaking the bread. And what do you think the expression was on the disciples' face when they took the bread and they said, he said, give it to the people where Jesus broke it. He started out with five loaves, but somehow that got split among 12. And they said, wow, mine's as big as yours. How'd you get, how'd that happen? Okay, let's start spreading. And they hand it, look at that, it's still there. They hand it, it keeps multiplying. And the fish, they'd break off a fish tail, another one would grow. 
And they just, I don't know how it happened, but I want to see it, don't you? They just, it just kept spreading. And not only did everybody get fed, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. They end up with more than they started with. Who got the biggest blessing in the process? The disciples, well, a little boy, yeah, <laughs> he got a big blessing. He had no idea that his mom could cook like that. <laughs> but um, the disciples, feeling it multiply in their hands is a wonderful thing. You ever give a Bible study? And you just, you're so afraid, and you don't know what you're going to do, you don't know what you're going to say, and, and somehow when it comes time to say something, God starts putting words in your mouth. Because sharing the gospel is the most important thing in the world to the Lord. Isn't that right? He's, he wants to save people. He wants to use you and I to save people. And if you say, Lord, I'm willing for you to use me to save people, well, you just better fasten your seatbelt because God is going to work miracles to use you if you're willing to be used. There is no limit to the usefulness of someone who would lay self aside and make room for the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's unlimited. To what God can do, the harvest is great, the laborers are few. There's a lot of empty vessels in your community. They need to be brought into our homes. This woman invited Elijah to come in her house. He also didn't just come in the house, he went and stayed in the upper room. What does that mean? Go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 17. The bin of flour, verse 16, the bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Everything that God says through Elijah happens. But as some time went by, it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious, there was no breath left in him. And that translates that his spirit was gone. He died. So she said to Elijah, with a broken heart, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? She's knowing he's a holy man. She's becoming aware because he's living in her home of her unholiness. And you know, if you invite God into your heart and into your home, you may feel conviction about your sin. But he didn't allow this to happen because of her sin. He wanted to strengthen her faith. You remember when Martha and Mary said, Lord, why did you let this happen with Lazarus? And Jesus said, don't be afraid. It's going to end good. Have you done this to call my sin to remembrance, to kill my son? He said to her, give me your son. Now, this is a, uh, that's a good verse you may want to underline. I don't know, I expect there's some of you out there that have children and grandchildren that may have been raised knowing the truth, or maybe you were converted and they were not, and you are praying for loved ones that are lost. You're praying for children. What does God say to you and me? Give me your son. Give me your daughter. Place them in his arms and ask God to do whatever he needs to do to reach them. He said, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms. She was cradling the boy in her arms. And, and Elijah, no doubt, Elijah rather, he'd been living in this home. And you know, you spend time with people. He probably grown fond of the boy. 
and would watch him grow and play during the, the months or maybe even years he was in the house. And it was breaking his heart too that the boy had died. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying. Have you heard upper rooms spoken of before in the Bible? Where was the Holy Spirit poured out? Upper room. Where did Jesus have the Last Supper? Upper room. Where did Elisha resurrect a boy? Upper room. Where did uh, Peter resurrect Dorcas? Upper room. You got an upper room. Took him into her upper room. It's the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, where he stays. And he stretched himself out. Oh, he first he prays to the Lord, verse 20. He cries out to the Lord and says, Oh, Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched him out on the child three times. And he cried out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Now, it didn't happen the first time, so just give up. I guess that meant the child was going to be doomed. It didn't happen the second time, but Elijah doesn't quit easy, does he? It turns out he prayed three times. How many days was Jesus in the tomb? Three days. At what point does this miracle take place? I want you to notice something. After this experience, the Bible says God then tells Elijah that the famine is going to end. And he goes to meet with Ahab. How long was the famine? Three and a half years. So after three and a half years, there is a resurrection in the upper room. Where does Jesus reveal himself to his disciples Sunday afternoon? He first, he, he appears to the women, but he waits until he's in the upper room. How long did Jesus preach? Three and a half years. Are you seeing some parallels between the story of Elijah and the story of Jesus? He stretched himself upon the child and he said, Lord, I pray let this child's soul come back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. Elijah is doing something here called mediating. He is going to the Lord in behalf of the woman. Now, what does a woman represent? Where does Elijah go to survive during the famine? The house of the woman. And what is he doing there? He's feeding through his miracle, through his word, the woman is fed miraculously. Through the miracle, the oil is multiplied in this woman's house. Through the miracle of Elijah's presence, there is a resurrection. You got the whole gospel in this story. Can you say amen? This stuff moves me. And he said, see, your son lives. The Lord revived the boy. He took the child and brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Now, there are seven miracle births in the Bible. All seven of those miracle births are boys. They are all types of Christ. Let me see if I can remember them. Isaac. He's a type of Christ, goes up the mountain with the wood on his back, he's a willing sacrifice. You've got Rachel's son, Joseph, 
She was barren. Joseph is betrayed by his own brothers and sold for the price of a slave, and he forgives him. Uh, Jacob, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was barren. Jacob is the father of the 12 patriarchs. He's a type of Christ. You've got the Shunammite woman. Her boy dies out in the field. When harvesting with the father, she's barren. She has this miracle boy, but he dies, and he's resurrected by Elisha. You've got Samson is a miracle birth. He dies stretching out his arms to save God's people from their enemies, a type of Christ. You've got John the Baptist, and then you've got Samuel, who is a judge and a priest for the people of God, and Jesus is our priest and our judge. Isn't that interesting? You've got these miracle births in the Bible, and uh, here you've got another resurrection of a boy. And these are types of Christ. You know, um, each one of the miracles of resurrection Jesus did was increasingly more difficult. The first resurrection Jesus does is for a girl who had just barely died, Jairus' daughter, 12 years old. He raises her. Then he raises the widow of Nain's son. He'd been dead long enough. He was on his way to the cemetery. So he can raise sons and daughters, amen? Then he raises Lazarus, who'd been dead for four days. Then Jesus raises himself. That's pretty hard. He says, I lay down my life and I have power to take it up again by his spoken word. And then someday he's going to come and he, the dead in Christ are going to rise when he comes, right? Dead in Christ rise first. And then, of course, you got a big resurrection at the end of the 1,000 years. Do you believe the Lord can perform a miracle? If it wasn't for the resurrection, we'd have no miracle, would we? We'd have no gospel. Paul said, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, your faith is in vain. The whole idea of our existence is because we believe that God can create from nothing. If we believe God can make Adam from the dust, then why would we doubt that Jesus could be raised? Why would we doubt that we could live again? This is what gives us hope. It's through faith in this miracle. I'm going to close with this verse. And John, I think, is going to make his way up, and he's going to be singing for me as we close. And then I'd like to pray with you. Hebrews 11.32. And what shall I more say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Who's that talking about? Daniel? Maybe Samson? Quenched the violence of the fire. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? Escaped the edge of the sword. Could be Gideon. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And notice this, women received their dead, raised to life again. Who do you think Paul's talking about? Could be Elijah, could be Elisha. They both did it. This story is a story of when that woman took the step of faith to invite the man of God into her home, that there was a miracle of supply that took place and a miracle of life that took place. And it's very similar to what Jesus does when we invite him into our homes and into our churches, that he provides for us. But you know what the test was? It was... They were surrounded by famine. Can you live a holy life in a famine-plagued world?
Can you be fed with the word of God when everyone around you is starving? Will your bread and water be sure? This is a story that tells us if we seek first his kingdom, he will supply for us. Do you believe it? And he can give you new life as he did in that woman's house. How many of you today would like to say, Lord, by your grace, I want to invite you into my upper room. I want to put you first in my life before father, mother, husband, wife, child. And Lord, I'm going to put all that I am and all that I have on the altar that you might feed me with the bread of life, give me the oil of your spirit and cause a resurrection in my heart. Is that your desire? Father in heaven, Lord, we believe we've heard your word tonight that never fails. And you are the same God that you always have been. We know that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. And now he's at the right hand of our Father, pleading in our behalf. Lord, in the same way that Elijah interceded for new life in that woman's home, we pray for new life in your church. That you bring revival, Lord. We believe there's a famine in the land. We're living in the days of great compromise. And we pray that we may not be part of the problem, but part of the solution. Search us and try us, Lord, if there's anything in our lives that we're holding back. Give us the faith and the courage to put that on the altar right now and make a full surrender. Pray your blessing on these convocations, the meetings. Be with every speaker. Fill them with your spirit and prepare us to do the work you've called us to do and for your return. We thank you and pray all this, believing in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.